We're looking again at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, and as you turn there in your Bibles or in the uh, worship handout that you have today, uh, let me just say something uh, about this passage, really the the last half of chapter 8 in the book of Romans. I I dare say that um, there is enough in what Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8 and in this last third, uh, that would enable a pastor with sufficient attention to everything that Paul says uh, to virtually uh, spend his whole career uh, attempting to extract and expound and present uh, the treasury of Christ that is contained in this section of God's word. Um, We, in many ways, just skim off the top and take what we receive from the Spirit and present that. I I know that's my perspective as someone who preaches, that there is so much in this, and we ought uh, ever to be coming again and again to the gospel passages like this and thinking about them deeply as to what they would mean and how we live our lives for Christ. Romans chapter 8, beginning once again at verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge? against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, that word means convinced, persuaded, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, We pray for your Holy Spirit to be the one who would open up to us the fullness of everything that springs out of your gospel, out of your word, out of your truth, out of your whole counsel. And we would pray that your spirit who brought these words into existence uh, through the writing of the Apostle Paul so that they are truly your infallible and errant word your voice speaking to us, that truly we would hear you, that we would receive what you would say to us, that we would understand it, 
be transformed by it and then have hearts that want to live it in every way. Father, as this passage leads us again to Christ, we pray that he would be the treasure of our hearts at all times. And so we would pray as we come to this passage that uh, the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to start with a question. I want to ask you, what is the greatest problem we face as human beings on this planet? Now, I don't want this to be a difficult question for us as Christians. Because as Christians, we know that the usual political headline issues, uh, these are not really the greatest problems that we face on this planet. Actually, what we know is this, that virtually everything we face as human beings, uh, all of the problems that we encounter in this world uh, are essentially of our own making. And we know that the source of this is man's inhumanity to his fellow man. We, we recognize that it is we human beings who actually destroy the kind of happiness that human beings might be able to have in this world, in this life. We can actually look at the second greatest commandment and we could say, if, if only human beings practice this kind of love, if, if only human beings actually loved their neighbors as they loved themselves, uh, what a truly different and profound uh, good world this would be to live in. Now, of course, there's a reason that this will never happen which is why man's inhumanity to his fellow man is really only the second greatest problem that we face on this planet. For the past 2,000 years, the world has refused to believe and to accept God's solution to the evil that dwells within human hearts. And that solution is Christ. And this rejection of Christ is, in fact, the greatest problem in the world. However, we know this problem will remain so until the end of history because Paul has spoken prophetically in the New Testament. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 7, or chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, halfway through verse 7, he says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. What Paul is teaching us is that with respect to human history and the world as a whole, it is literally hell-bent against believing and Jesus. Now, how does that relate to us, and how does that relate to the text before us? I want to propose that we face a similar great challenge. I want to propose that we also face the challenge of believing with complete trust 
and complete consistency that God's solution for the world, which is Christ, is also our solution. I want to propose that we have the problem of believing at all times and accepting at all times with respect to all circumstances that God's solution in Christ applies to us with respect to all the challenges and hardships of life. What I mean is this. If we're honest about our lives, we would admit that we have, often have, trust issues with God. Too often we fail to trust God. But rather we default to trusting in ourselves. Uh, we trust in ourselves to deal with the difficult things and issues of life. Further, we often actually prefer our own desires and standards and activities and purposes over God's. Nevertheless, this being so, I want us to see that in spite of our trust issues, in spite of how we so often live in accordance with our preferences, the Bible's message in Christ shows us constantly how God loves us, how God relates to us in every way, under all circumstances, according to the grace and salvation that he has given to us in Christ. I want us to see and I want us to trust that our lives rest upon the grace that God has given to us in Jesus. I want us to see that we have an anchor in Christ that always holds. That's the idea I want to emphasize as we look once again at this passage. In a nutshell, here is the main thing that I want to present this morning. That according to the gospel, when we trusted in Jesus, we became the possessors of that which guarantees our saved and secure relationship with God for all eternity. Now, this is what Paul teaches here in this passage. Uh, he begins chapter 8 by asserting that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in this section, Paul develops further why this is the case. So from this passage, among others in the New Testament, we see three vital truths that form this guarantee. This guarantee rests upon the propitiation of the Father's wrath, the intercession of Christ the Son, and then the pleasure that the Father has in the work of his Son. So to begin with, the propitiation of the Father's wrath. Here I want to point you to verse 32. Uh, there is Paul's reference to the death of Christ. The Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul first announces the death of Christ in chapter 3, in verses 24 and 25. He's speaking about sinners who are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the key teaching of Paul is this, 
that the redemption we have in Christ is specifically that of a propitiation, which is a very important statement about the particular kind of redemptive sacrifice that Christ has accomplished. For at the very beginning of the book of Romans and Paul's presentation of the gospel back in chapter 1 in verse 18, Paul points something out about the human predicament. He points out that our predicament before God lies in God's reaction to the fallen human condition, specifically how human beings in our fallenness possess a constant disposition to, to bury and to ignore the reality of God, the reality of God that he himself has revealed in nature and in everything that he has created. The whole creation declares the glory of God and the fallen human condition is to ignore this, to bury this, to suppress the true knowledge of the true God. Every human being and his fallenness suppresses that truth. And in response to that suppression, we read that God reveals his wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress this truth in their unrighteousness. The response to the human condition is the wrath of God. Now, even though this true knowledge of the true God is suppressed, even the pagans understood they had some sense that this wrath of God, which they realized existed, that this wrath of God had to be dealt with. They had this sense that 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 God's wrath needed to be propitiated, to be appeased, to be pacified, or that they would perish. And they called this kind of sacrifice a propitiation. And so did the Old Testament sacrificial system. So whether it was the Greco-Roman world, the Greco-Roman pagan, or in fact the Jew, Paul's message that put forth Jesus as the sacrifice that would turn away God's wrath was most significant. The great danger that comes about because of God's wrath is propitiated. That's very good news for those who would believe. But what I want us to understand as we look at this passage is how we need to take this truth personally. God intended for us to take this truth personally, to apply it personally, to rely upon it personally. To do so looks like this. It's to be able to confess and say with confidence, Jesus' death in my place on the cross has propitiated entirely God's wrath against my sin. All of my sin. Past, present, future. All of my sin. The biggest sins and the smallest. All has been covered by the blood of Jesus. God's holy, righteous, and enormous anger against me is extinguished by that blood now and forevermore never to be ignited again by anything I could ever do. The guilt and condemnation was transferred to Jesus. The penalty was transferred to Christ. He bore God's holy wrath entirely and extinguished it completely. 
Consequently, I am free of all of the demands of God's justice. Since in Jesus, all those demands have been met on my behalf and to my credit. There is therefore now no condemnation for me, for any who are in Christ. There is no condemnation at all. Matthew Henry has remarked, outside of Christ, God is a consuming fire. Inside of Christ, he is the reconciled father. I am in Christ. Therefore, according to the gospel, when I trusted in Jesus, I became a possessor of that blood-covering work of Christ that guarantees my saved and secure relationship with God for all eternity. This is my anchor that holds in every high and stormy gale. Then Paul gives us a second guarantee. It's the intercession of Christ the Son. In verse 34, Paul reminds us that Christ Jesus, who died for us, is raised up and is seated at the right hand of God and that he is there interceding for us. Now, let's actually interpret this personally, immediately, and understanding what it means. Right now, at the Father's right hand, Jesus intercedes for me. He is my advocate. He defends me. He pleads for me. He pleads my case before the Father's throne. But because he's my representative, he's my substitute, he pleads out of who he is and out of what he has done. He pleads nothing of my Christian life. He pleads nothing of my good works because such a case would be doomed because all of my righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Instead, he pleads the perfection of his own life and death on my behalf, on behalf of my sinful, fallen life. His constant witness in advocating on my behalf is the defense based upon what he has done, resting entirely upon the perfect accomplishment of all that the Father had given him to do on my behalf on behalf of all sinful human beings that the Father had given to the Son, all those who had placed their faith and trust Christ. Now, the Bible opens up this fullness even more particularly of what Jesus has done for me and the particular points upon which this intercession is based. We know, I know. In fact, the Bible tells me that Jesus gave his life as a sin offering, uh, as a guilt offering. That this has expiated my guilt, has removed any and all condemnation before the law. Jesus has carried the penalty of my sin. He has satisfied my sinful debt before the justice of God. Again, I know that Jesus gave his life as a peace offering. That's the propitiation. It has appeased the holy wrath of God 
and all of God's infinite displeasure, all of God's repugnance over my ungodliness has been extinguished. I am accepted in the beloved. And as Paul is telling us here, Jesus advocates his life and death as the perfect act of reconciliation that has removed all of the hostility that existed on God's side against me so that he's transformed my relationship. I am no longer God's enemy, but I've been translated out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son and adopted by the father to be a co-heir with his son, Jesus Christ. And because of what Paul teaches here, I know that Jesus pleads his death as a ransom on my behalf, that he has purchased me from death, purchased me from being separated from the life of God, that he has bought me out of the slavery to sin. He has brought me into the newness of life by regenerating and sanctifying me by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, this is truth that I am to take personally. It's based upon the message of the gospel that when I trusted Jesus, I became one of those who was named by Jesus in his intercession at the Father's right hand. And as long as Jesus intercedes for me, which the gospel says is forever, that I possess the guarantee of my saved and secure relationship with God for all eternity. And that's why in every high and stormy gale, Christ is my anchor that holds within the veil. Now, the third truth is this. The father takes pleasure in the work of his son. And once again, we are to embrace this personally. The gospel has taught me it is something that I've learned to lean on. That in all that Jesus has done and done for me in covering my sin and in interceding for me, Jesus pleases the Father. How do I know this? It's the Father's own testimony that he delights in his Son and that with his Son he is well pleased. We see this at the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or we could look to the testimony of prophecy, which actually speaks about this matter that took place at the baptism of Jesus. In Isaiah 42.1, God, speaking through Isaiah, says this about Christ. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, 
in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then we have a third testimony from God the Father, one that was spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, verse 5, Peter is speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. These passages speak of the delight that the Father has in his Son. The Father is well pleased with Christ. And this this favor that Christ possesses in the eyes of his Father is something that has flowed out of the relationship that that Christ, the beloved Son, has with his Father, who does the Father's will, who lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus states the matter this way. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The Father loves the Son because the Son lays down his life for the sheep. The Father takes pleasure in his Son. The Father takes pleasure in the work of his Son. He is delighted in all that his Son does to save sinners because the salvation of sinners is the Father's will also. Now, once again, we are to take this personally. We are to embrace it personally. We are to see that it speaks to us who've trusted in Jesus in that individual and personal sense. So, all that Jesus does on behalf of my wicked and sinful life, everything Jesus does pleases the Father. All that Jesus does to rescue my life from my sin and from my folly supremely honors the Father's grace. It all counts for the glory of that grace. And God is supremely happy by what Jesus does, and therefore he constantly forgives me. Because to do so honors the whole work of the Son. There is therefore never any reluctance on God's part to forgive me. Never any hesitation to restore fellowship. Never any distancing of himself from me. Never any holding on to his being grieved over my sins such that he holds me off at arm's length for a while until he's ready to reestablish fellowship. No, none of that at all. God is ever the father looking for me as his prodigal son to return. God is ever that father running full of grace to meet me, ever celebrating my return, even before I can get the words of repentance out of my heart, 
ever embracing me in my unrighteous and filthy rags, even before I even feel the cleansing blood of his grace. Because in truth, the Father sees me clothed in the righteousness of his Son. Because all of this is so, because the Father takes such pleasure in the work of his Son, it is folly for me to remain even one instant out of fellowship with God. Even in that first instant after I have sinned, when I know I should return to God right then, repudiation of the God-honoring work of a son, when I hesitate, when I think that some time must elapse, that surely the Father isn't ready to receive me in repentance. Our shame, our shame, not the Father's love, is what keeps us from returning immediately to the fountain of all grace. Our shame is grounded in such a legalistic view of grace. Our shame causes us to think, I somehow must get better in some manner. I must develop a better frame of mind before I can return to God. I must feel more sorrow. I must be ready to promise more repentance. I must feel more contrition. I must be more humble. I must be more determined not to sin. I must be more weary and sick of sin before I can honestly face God and acknowledge my offenses and ask forgiveness. Will I? Will you? In fellowship with just yourself? Be made more sorrowful for sin, more aware of the debt that we owe, more conscience, conscious of our great need for the blood of Christ to change you. Will I, when I sit in my shame, am I becoming more deeply understanding of what the grace is that Christ has wrought for us? What folly it is to fail to see that Jesus has pleased the Father, not me. It's his pleasing of the Father that is my all and only basis of fellowship with God, not mine. How dishonoring to think that something in me, even in the changes that grace has wrought and worked in me, ever give me merit before God. What robbery it is to take from Christ this way. What theft to try to divide the pleasure of the Father between Christ and me. But what joy and confidence to rest only in Christ, of whom the Father has said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is in those words 
that we find the heart and grace of the gospel. When I came to trust in Jesus, I became a possessor of this most wonderful guarantee of my salvation, that the Father takes pleasure, complete pleasure, everlasting pleasure in the work of his Son, that work which has fully and sufficiently and forevermore paid the penalty for all my sins. Therefore, I rest on this unchanging grace that in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. Now, we began our approach to this passage thinking about the greatest problem that the world faces, the greatest problem of the fallen human condition. And I, I targeted that problem as the world's unwillingness to embrace Christ as the solution to man's great inhumanity to his fellow man, the world's unwillingness to trust and rest on Christ as God's solution to all that makes us broken and evil. But then I propose that we as Christians also have our trust issues. We far too often fail to rest and trust in Christ in all of these issues and problems and challenges that we face. That in essence, we fail to see and to believe that in every high and stormy gale, Christ, our anchor, holds within the veil. And because this is so, we have needed a strong dose of all that we have in Christ to remind us that when all around our souls give way, Christ is all our hope and stay. So we listen to the guarantees that Paul, as the voice of the Holy Spirit, as the voice of God himself, teaches us that we have in Christ, that we personally have in Christ. The guarantee that the very wrath of God against all of our ungodliness has been propitiated, extinguished by the blood of Christ. The guarantee that Christ, who sits at the Father's right hand, always lives to intercede for us according to his own justice, satisfying, wrath, propitiating work. So that there's never a moment when God looks upon us except through the intercession of his Son. And the guarantee that the Father takes infinite pleasure in the work of his Son. Pleasure in the work by which Christ saves to the uttermost those who come to him in faith. Thus we know with confidence these gospel guarantees that when we trusted in Jesus, we became saved and secure in our relationship with God for all eternity. For Christ, the solid rock on which we stand, is the anchor that holds in every high and stormy gale. Amen. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts again by your Holy Spirit that we need Christ. We need Christ always in everything. 
for all time, for eternity. And that you've given us Christ by your grace freely. Now by your spirit, enable us to trust him more and more. So that on Christ, our solid rock, we would stand. We would know and see that all other ground is sinking sand. For this we pray, for the glory of Christ, in his name, amen.